So welcome back to our series on inheriting God's land. And today we're going to look at Jabez, who's a man that comes in the record only once in the first of Chronicles chapter four. It's one of the greatest travesties in religion that some evangelicals use Jabez as the hero of their abundance or prosperity gospel. Because we find in the record a man asking God for more material wealth, and they applaud this as being an example of if, if you give to God and you ask God for material wealth, then you will receive it. And it's called the abundance gospel. It's, it's sad that Jabez is being used to support that. But we see Jabez in a very different light to material prosperity. Our brother John Thomas made a very astute observation when he said this, the deity delights in stimulating the intellect of his creatures. He therefore reveals himself to them mysteriously. And that's from Phanerosis, page 38. And that's an astute observation because it points out that God loves to excite and expand our minds, and particularly the minds of those who are keen to understand his word. He puts challenges in front of them to actually work through things that are difficult. God conceals his spiritual gems. And as he says in Proverbs, it's the glory of God to conceal things. The glory of kings is to search them out. And when we come to the prayer of Jabez, we have to do quite a bit of digging to find those gems, but they are there. And so we're going to, to look for those gems about Jabez. Now, normally when we come across the record of Chronicles, we find there are lots and lots of names and we stumble over them. But inside those genealogies, there are many hidden gems and missing links that add vital details. For example, in the first of Chronicles chapter 9 and verse 20, we find information about the sons of Korah being adopted and trained by Phineas, the son of Eliezer. And that puts a whole new picture on the story of the sons of Korah. In chapter 3 of Chronicles, we have the sons of Josiah listed, and we find there's a missing son. We can count for all the others in the record of the Kings and Chronicles, but there's one that goes missing. And again, there's a very exciting story behind that. So there are little details in Chronicles which are there for us to dig out. The book of Chronicles was written very likely at the time of the Babylonian captivity and probably written by Ezra or Nehemiah. The proof of that timing is that we have all the kings of Judah listed in the book of Chronicles, right down to the last king Zedekiah. So it's pretty clear that this record of Chronicles was made sometime after the, the kingdom had finally fallen and very likely during the captivity in Babylon. So what are Chronicles all about? Well, we think Chronicles, Chronicles is, of course, an English word that just means a set of books or records. But in the Hebrew, the word that is used is the things left out. So isn't that fascinating? Chronicles adds details that are omitted in earlier records. Right amidst all those names we get, there are some very significant names. And we need to point out that these names are there for a reason. A lot of the names we have are only a small sample of the millions of names extant down through Israel's history. The ones here are here for a reason. They are tracing us to make connections between certain people. So the genealogies in Chronicles are not necessarily complete nor linear. Sometimes they follow just one line of a family and include relevant incidents about them. Now, chapter three deals with all the kings of Judah. In fact, the two books of Chronicles are focused on the kings of Judah. They contain very little detail about the northern kings, only when they come across and associate with the kings of Judah in some way. 
So this is not a normal genealogy like you get in Genesis chapter 5. What you get in the, the record of Chronicles, particularly in chapters 2 to 4, are various family and tribal groups and tracing a number of thematic lineages. So not a, a linear one, a thematic lineage, taking you through a particular line of thought. Sometimes you get a, a, a theme of certain trades or occupations that were associated with various towns or cities. So remember that we're dealing with in Chronicles with a thematic genealogy, not a linear one. When you come to First of Chronicles chapter 4, we find that it's very much focused around people who live near Bethlehem. And that's the theme of chapter 4. It's how about the inhabitants of Bethlehem especially. In verse 4, you've got Bethlehem, Ephratah, and Tekoa, all of them very close to each other near Bethlehem. So again, Tekoa in verse 5. So we're dealing with the area of Bethlehem, and that's very relevant because it gives us some idea of where the city of Jabez might have ended up in the record. All of these places are not far away from the valley of Achor, and that, of course, is something which is significant in the history of Joshua chapter 7. So just remember those details about Chronicles. These are little extra details that God has given us to actually make sense of some of the records and sometimes to give us a theme. And one of the themes here is to do with Bethlehem area. So there are many things about this chronology which are interesting. You might notice in chapter 4 and verse 14 that we have references to the occupations that were predominant in certain cities. In chapter 4 and verse 14, there were craftsmen. In chapter 20, there were makers of fine linen. Chapter 23, that city had particularly potters. In verse 39, there were shepherds. And in chapter 2, verse 55, we have scribes who lived at a place called Jabez. Isn't that interesting? Jabez is a city around this time. So many of the family groups here are tracing occupations and locations in the record. It is not ever pretending to be a, a genealogy of the whole tribe of Judah. And what we do find is that when Israel took over the land of Canaan, many Canaanite place names were changed. We know that Luz became Bethel, Kirjath Arba became Hebron, and many other names were changed as Israel took over those cities and lands. What they used to do was in many cases they would name the city that they had conquered after the head of the family who was the one who was extant as the head of that family or tribe at that particular time. So we're talking now well into the days of Joshua. They've conquered all the armed resistance. They now go to conquer their own individual inheritances. And as they conquer these Canaanite cities, they would rename them. Just like later on, of course, we're going to find that Jebus is renamed Jerusalem uh, in the days of David. So what they used to do was to name them after the heads of the families. And I've just made a list here of some of the ones you can trace between Chronicles and first and Joshua chapter 15, where God outlines the cities that were allocated to Judah. And again, you see that Bethlehem features in that, but you can see that there are, back in Joshua 15, there's a city called Eshtemoah, and here we have a man in the genealogy called Eshtemoah. We have Ziph, we have Gedor, Soko, Sanoa, Kerjath, Jerem, and so forth. And all of them are mentioned as cities back in Joshua chapter 15. So we're dealing here with an area in Judah and particularly the area near Bethlehem. And, and we know that the different trades in these different cities that are outlined for us in this chapter 
But we're also getting this mention that we're actually focusing upon very a very small part of the tribe of Judah in this record in which we find Jabez, and that's very significant. So the inheritance cases here are only part of the overall allocation in, that we find in Joshua 15, and it's a focus on the area of Bethlehem. And you wouldn't be surprised at that because in chapter 3 you have David's family, and, of course, David came from Bethlehem. And again, it's very much focused in that part of Judah. Now, before we come to the prayer of Jabez, we need to establish a time frame for Jabez. Some believe that Jabez lived in David's time. But I would like to make a suggestion to you that the prayer of Jabez happened in the days of Joshua. Between the events that happened in Joshua chapter 21 and 22, many years later, right between chapters 22 and 23 of the book of Joshua. We find, for example, in Joshua 23, verse 1, that many years have gone by, that there's a, a big gap between the Joshua 22 and Joshua 23. And it's in that gap, I believe, that we have the prayer of Jabez. This timing would explain why an important city of scribes called Jabez that we find listed in 1 Chronicles 2 and verse 55 a city only spoken of at the time that Chronicles were written was not listed in Joshua 15. You know, God lifts off hundreds of cities that they would inherit. But he doesn't list a place called Jabez. So we have a city that is now called Jabez that's probably in that list somewhere that has been renamed Jabez. That's important. So this story of Jabez is dropped in the middle of other stories about how Judah's inheritance were taken by various families and what they did with that inheritance. So the reason for the timing of verse of chapter of First Chronicles four verse nine to ten, and of chapters two and four entirely, the reason for the timing of these chapters is very easy to work out. It had to be at a time when inheritances were still not finalised. I'll say that again. It had to be done at a time. You can't enlarge somebody's inheritance once all the land has been conquered, settled, and divided up. This had to occur at a time when God could enlarge the inheritance of Jabez. Now, many of the names listed here are family heads, and you can find them back in Joshua 15, outlined back there. You know, there are some fascinating things in 1 Chronicles chapter 2 and chapter 4 about this area of Bethlehem and Judah. Caleb's sons are here in chapter 4 and verse 15. Caleb's daughter Axar is here in chapter 2 and verse 49. And then we have the most intriguing little record in chapter 4 and verse 18, where it mentions there are grandsons of Pharaoh here. That would have to place the events and the localities here back into the days of Joshua, a time when inheritances were beginning out and allocated after they had conquered the land. So the mention of Caleb, Caleb's daughter, and the, son, the grandsons of Pharaoh immediately places what you see in First Chronicles back into the days of, of the great man Joshua. We need to remember that it took many, many years for Israel to finally take all their inheritance from the Canaanites. Joshua had led them as one army for seven years of campaigns to smash the organised resistance. But after that, every tribe had to clear out their individual area, get rid of the remaining Canaanites, and as we know, so sadly, many of them failed to do this. In some cases, cities like Salem and Giza remained Canaanite strongholds right down to the days of David and Solomon. 
It took many, many years, sometimes hundreds of years, for the Canaanites to finally be removed. So let's just have a look at Joshua 13, verse 1. And it tells us there that at this particular time, at the end of the conquest, that Joshua was now regarded as being quite old. Joshua was old and stricken in years. Well, you know, he wasn't as old as we think. He's had 40 years in the wilderness. At the start of that, he was leading the army against the Amalekites. So he's probably something like 60 or 70 when Joshua 13, verse 1 is written. And, you know, God reminds him there's much of the land to be possessed. So there was a lot of land that had not yet been conquered and a lot of land had not yet been allocated to individuals. So many years go by, and we now come to something which is probably 50 years later. It came to pass after a long time that Yahweh had given rest unto Israel from their enemies round about, that Joshua waxed old and stricken in age, and he's now 110, and he called all the nations and to Shechem, and he gives them this wonderful speech we find in Joshua 23 and 24. So, just before his death, he makes this final speech. But we do find again that one of the things he says to them is that they have not conquered the land. They have not taken the land that they should have taken. And so we read in chapter 23 and verse 2 to 6 that when Joshua speaks at the end of his life, he says there, Behold, I have divided unto you by lot the nations that remain by an inheritance for your tribes. And you see this term inheritance coming back into focus. Goes on to say, and Yahweh your God, he shall expel them from before you and drive them out from your sight, and ye shall possess their land as he's promised to you. So be courageous and do it. So here we are, you know, a good 50 years after the conquering of the land, they still not have regained all of their inheritance. So the land is still being divided up when Joshua is about to die. So let's just do a bit of thinking about the age of of Joshua and the years that have gone by. How many years had passed? Joshua led the battle in Exodus 17. He's described as a young man in Exodus 33. Let's say he's 30. He spent 40 years in the wilderness plus seven years of conquest. That makes him 77 when they gave out the inheritance to the tribes. Already described as old and stricken in Joshua 13 verse 1. He died 110 and the last speech was just before his death. So by then there'd been about 33 wasted years in which Israel failed to finish off the Canaanite extermination. So there's a big gap there, and I believe that Jabez has his inheritance enlarged in this particular phase when there was still plenty of time to hand out more inheritances. A time there was a very gradual taking of tribal areas occurred and dividing them into family lots. So there was still room for a new inheritance to be made. So there's plenty of years around this period between the conquering of the land and the death of Joshua. Now, when we come back to, to First Chronicles chapter 4, I want to explore further our suggestion about Jabez living in this time. Now, here comes a big suggestion I want you to take on board and just please bear with me until you hear the evidence. I suggest Jabez is actually a son of Achan or a grandson or a nephew, but somebody from the family of Achan, the troubler of Israel. That might seem challenging, but please listen to the evidence. When you come to the family tree of Judah that we have in the first of Chronicles, we are tracing one particular part of it. It's tracing the family of the Zorahites. You get that at the end of verse 2. Now, we need to notice that when we come to first of Chronicles chapter 4, 
Only the sons of Judah and Tamar are being mentioned, and there were other sons of Judah that were not mentioned here. Only the sons of Tamar and only the family of Zorah is being traced through this record. So very specific, a very specific portion of the family of Jacob is being selected here. And here is the family tree. Now, bear in mind that when you get in this record, there's the other thing which we need to work out. Too. When it says son of or sons of, in the Hebrew, the word sons is a very general word for descendants. It doesn't mean necessarily the first generation or the second generation. It can leap many generations at times. It means a descendant of. Now, look at the, the family tree we have here, the family of the Zorahites. We have Judah and we have Zorah. We have Zabdi, also called Zimri. Carmi, Achan, and I believe Jabez was the son of Achan. So, you know, Carmi is in the record. He's not a direct son of Judah. He's listed rather as a descendant from this section of the family of Judah. So from Judah down to Achan's sins, we have a period of about 250 years. In other words, four generations are given, and there could be some that are not even recorded, but the ones we have is at least four generations we would easily span 250 years from Judah right down to the time of um, what we believe would be Achan and Jabez. So let's go back to Joshua chapter 7 and look at the sin of Achan and just notice a few important details. And that'll just, I think, convince you that this is exactly right, the supposition we've made about the timing of Jabez. So back in Joshua chapter 7, the accusation is made. We know that God had to, there was no confession. God had to sort it out by lot to trace back to the family that was there. And so we find he brought his household man by man, and Achan, the son of Carmi, the son of Zabdi, the son of Zerah, of the tribe of Judah, was taken. There's your genealogy again. And Joshua said to Achan, my son, give I pray thee, and notice these words, glory to the God of Israel. Now that's not a very common title. Give glory to the God of Israel. Why would you use that title to a Jew, to an Israelite? Normally that was used by Gentiles who glorified the God of Israel, as we find in the book of Matthew. Um, but here is glory to the God of Israel from a Jew. Unusual term. Make confession. Tell me what you've done. Hide it not. Interesting, isn't it, that even when a person has been totally caught out, and admit their guilt, there still must be confession to give glory to God. Good principle in ecclesial life. People make mistakes sometimes with tragic consequences, but there must always be confession and God must be honoured. And Achan did that. Achan answered Joshua and said, Indeed, I have sinned against Yahweh, God of Israel. And he picked that up. And thus and thus have I done. So you can imagine, can't you, that this was a, a very dramatic occasion. Now, how old was Achan at this age? What was the maximum age he could be? Well, it had to be about 58. We note he had grown up children and God held them accountable in his sin. They must have been party to his sin. God does not punish children for the sins of their parents. The older children must have known what had happened and the concealing of that gold and garment in the tent of Achan. So, we believe that Achan would have been about 58 at this particular time. Now, note particularly what happens in verse 19. And Joshua and all Israel with him took Achan the son of Zorah 
and his silver and the garment and the wedge of gold and his sons and his daughters and his oxen and his asses and his sheep, his tent and all that he had, and they brought him to the valley of Achor. But there's somebody missing. It doesn't mention his wife. She's not there. Why would it be that perhaps she was spared from being stoned and then burnt? Well, maybe she was near to giving birth to a child. And we know in the law in Moses that God valued the life of the unborn child. If somebody was fighting and an unborn child was lost, then that was regarded as murder. So in God's eyes, an unborn child was a life to be valued. And it's no fault of the child that maybe it's even its mother might have been complicit in the sin. Maybe she was ignorant of the sin. We don't know. But God held the children accountable. But the wife is not mentioned. Maybe it was one of Achan's sisters who was about to give birth at that particular time. Maybe a close family member. Somebody who would feel the great sorrow of this. We notice that Achan's wife was missing. So let's come to the story of Jabez. This family and their sin had cost the lives of many people's fathers, sons, and brothers at Ai. You can imagine the shame and the hostility that family felt. And there were 40 years, we remember, from the stoning of Achan to the death of Joshua. During that time, individual inheritances were still being divided up and more territory was being conquered. Had Jabez been born just after the stoning of Achan, then it's plenty of time for him to grow up and to ask for a better inheritance when he came to the age at least of 20. And we know that he asked and he got it. After the sin of Achan, his wider disgraced family may have been assigned the valley of Achor as their family inheritance. In Joshua 15 verse 62, the very last place that was allocated to the tribe of Judah is a place called Midden. And it seems to be not only was it the last place allocated, it was the least place allocated. It's in the area of the Valley of Achor. Who else in Israel would want an inheritance in the place of the curse where the pile of stones was raised over the sinner Achan? Who would want that? And I believe what happened is that the family of Achan actually were given the Valley of Achor as their poor inheritance in Judah. So let's talk about Jabez. We know a lot of things about him from a very small record. He should never be revered by the evangelicals as he is to facilitate their prosperity gospel. It's a travesty indeed. Well, number one, he was named by his mother. That's unusual in, in Jewish circles. We know in the case of John the Baptist that his father had the prerogative to name him. We noticed that Joseph named Jesus in, in accordance with God's commandment. To be named by a mother was unusual. It indicates the father is already dead, that the mother would do the naming. We notice he was born at a time of great sadness and sorrow. The Hebrew there is, he did it as a sorrowful one. This was more than the pain of childbirth. This was a time of great grief and sadness, as well as the physical pain of bearing that child. Jabez grew up to be more honourable than his brothers and sisters. You know, they had participated in the sin of Achan. And the record says he was more honourable than his brethren. He had better character than they did. They had been judged and condemned. We find in his prayer that he's very sensitive about committing sin. He eschewed evil. He says, let me not commit evil. 
it clearly worked out that his inheritance was an inferior one, and so he prayed to God for a better one. He prayed for better inheritance, an enlarging of his borders, and God gave it to him. You know, the word he used when he says, enlarge my borders, is actually taken from Exodus 34 and verse 24, where God had promised faithful Israelites that he would enlarge their borders. So it wasn't without some precedent that he could actually use those terms in his prayer. But the important thing is that God granted his request. He gave him a better inheritance. And so we suddenly find in Chronicles, in the area near Bethlehem, we have a city called Jabez. And the families of the scribes which dwelt at Jabez, the Terathites, the Shimeathites, the Sukkothites, these are the Kenites that came of Hemath, the father of the house of Rechab. Now, we know who the Kenites were. They were the direct descendants of Jethro and his family. They had originally inherited land within Judah's portion. Some of the Kenites became scribes. After Jonadab's zeal in the days of Jehu, the Kenites became known in Israel as the Rechabites, and they were used in the, the, the great prophecy of Jeremiah in chapter 35 as an example to Israel of faithfulness to their father's covenant. And we find that they, after the days of Jehu, they decided to live as nomads in tents. But back in these days, they were scribes in the city of Jabez. And that's the important thing we wanted to take. Here's a city that was not recorded in Joshua chapter 15. Here's a city that's now found listed as the home of the Kenite scribes. And it seems to be near Bethlehem. Very hard for us to trace this city particularly, but it became the home of a faithful group of scribes and a place that we know in the Chronicles record only. And I believe this is the, the city that God gave to Jabez as a better inheritance. Let's now look at the prayer of Jabez in a little more detail. What a faithful prayer it was. Jabez called on the God of Israel. He's picking that straight up from Joshua chapter 7, from the words of Joshua and from the words of his own father. He called on the God of Israel. He prayed for a special blessing. He asked God to enlarge his borders, his coast. The word is to multiply. Now, that's another word he uses there, to multiply. And that comes straight from the promises to Abraham. I will multiply thy seed as the stars of heaven. It's exactly the same word. You can see how spiritual this is. Enlarging and multiplying is all about actually picking up from the words that God has used in the past. He asked God to keep him from evil. He feared failure and causing trouble. And that would, of course, would be a family that always felt the disgrace of Achan and the damage that it caused to other families. And God granted that which he requested. It was not a mercenary grab for personal wealth, but a burning desire to fully share Abraham's promised land. And he got that given to him. And God loves to see that desire in all of his saints, that they want to be part of his kingdom in Abraham's land. There are many faithful Israelites who asked God for an inheritance and received it. You remember the daughters of Zelophehad in our previous study, those five wise virgins of the Old Testament, who came time and again before Moses and Joshua that they might receive the inheritance of their father. We saw in that record how many times the word inheritance is used, five times in Numbers 26, six times in Numbers 27, 17 times in Numbers 36, and three times in Joshua 17 ending up with that God gave them an inheritance amongst the brethren of their father. So this is all about the desire to be sharing the land with Abraham. 
Their request was not a demand for rights, women's rights, or even for just material gain. It was a burning desire to inherit Abraham's land. And God responded twice in changing the law to their benefit. So inheritance matters. You know, Ephesians makes it clear that we have an inheritance in Christ. Talking about our hope in whom we have obtained an inheritance. That you might know what is the hope of his calling and what is the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints. And we are a great inheritance that God has given us and we are God's inheritance as well. He that overcometh shall inherit all things, as Revelation 21 verse 7. Giving thanks unto the Father, which hath made us meet to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in light, in Colossians 1 verse 11 and 12. And right through the New Testament writers, this idea of inheritance is taken up and used to encourage us to continue. Our faith and hope is totally bound up in the glorious future that God offers in Abraham's land. Our hope is Abraham's hope. Our hope is the promises being fulfilled in Mount Zion. Our hope is Jesus reigning as king over all the earth and possessing the gate of his enemies. Our calling is more than just being saved from mortality. It's being part of the future in Zion, being heirs with Abraham and Christ. No matter where you go through the Bible, that theme is there. That them who by compassion continuance in well-doing seek for glory and honour and immortality, they will be granted eternal life. Everybody who asks received. Caleb, Aksar, Jabez, the daughters of Zelophehad, they were all rewarded for their persistent asking of God. I want to just finish with a little thought about the Valley of Achor itself. The Valley of Achor pictured today is, is a very desolate, barren, rocky area with almost no trees at all. It might not have been like that in the days of Joshua, but it was down near the Dead Sea and so was a place that was very, very much starved of rain, uh, affected by the, the great chasm of the Dead Sea and not very prosperous at all. It would have certainly been a very rocky territory because of the hills of Judea it was in. It was once a place of curse. So we can see where it was initially. It was right down by the River Jordan, just in the early part of the hills of Judea as they came up from Gilgal. And it was over in Ai where they had gone across the battle and come back. And the Valley of Achor was there, and it was the place of the burial of Achan and his family. We're told that in Joshua 7, they raised of him a great heap of stones unto this day. Yahweh turned from the feast of his anger, wherefore the name of the place is called the Valley of Achor unto this day. So it's in the wilderness of Judea. It's a dry and parched area, and it carried the curse of Achan and most of his family. But there's a future for it. When we come to Hosea 2 in verse 15, God says this, Behold, I will allure her, that is, Israel being regathered, I'll bring her into the wilderness and speak comfortably unto her. And I will give her vineyards from thence and the valley of Achor for a door of hope. And she shall sing there as in the days of her youth and as in the days when she come up out of the land of Egypt. And we're going to see the, that God has prepared a journey for the children of Israel as they come through Assyria and through Egypt, through the highways that God will create, as Isaiah tells us. And they will come to the area of the Dead Sea and go up the valley of Achor as part of that learning journey going from the Dead Sea up towards the temple. They'll go through this valley. And wouldn't it be wonderful in this valley if they get to meet people like Jabez and they reject their attachment that the Jews have always had to trusting in Babylonish gold and silver 
It's been the great stumbling block. It's why the Jews have so often refused to move when they can see that they're about to be persecuted. It's because of their financial investments that they trust in. Maybe in the Valley of Acre, they will learn to give up their hope in silver and gold. They will come here full of shame at their rejection of the Messiah in the past. And perhaps an immortal Jabez will be there to meet them and to instruct them. His message will be, your fathers may have sinned, but you can recover from the sins of your fathers. You can find mercy from the God of Israel. Confess and give glory to the God of Israel and you will be blessed. You will get an inheritance with Abraham in his land. Beautiful thoughts, aren't they, about the Valley of Achor in the future. And there will be our final redemption of the Valley of Achor. This is Isaiah 65, verse 8 to 10. Thus saith Yahweh, as the new wine is found in the cluster, and one saith, destroy it not, for a blessing is in it. So will I do for my servant's sake, that I may not destroy them all. You might have noticed in both Hosea and in Isaiah, you have a reference to a vineyard and to grapes. Um, and that's another theme that you could, might want to follow through. But there's a preservation here going on. I will preserve them. I will not destroy all of them. I will bring forth a seed out of Jacob and out of Judah, an inheritor of my mountains. And there is that theme of inheritance again. The Jews will inherit the land and my election will inherit it. So there's another class there, not just Jews. My servant shall dwell there. This is the, the saints and the children of the saints. And we're going to see the combination of the mortal children of Israel, the immortal saints, and the mortal children of the saints and grandchildren of the saints all coming together that they might inherit the land with Abraham. Sharon shall be a fold of flocks, and the valley of Achor a place for herds to lie down in, and for my people that have sought me. It's going to become a place of blessing where it was once a place of curse. So, brethren and sisters, as we've seen through this series, inheritance really matters. I want to end with the very lovely words that we find in Psalm 37, where inheritance once again is put squarely before us. We know that God promises to grant our spiritual desires, and we must have a, a clear vision of something we want to be in, a place we want to see, of things we want to do in the kingdom that God might be glorified. Delight also thyself in Yahweh, and he shall give thee the desires of thine heart. Commit thy way unto Yahweh, trust also in him, and he shall bring it to pass. Cease from anger and forsake wrath, fit not thyself in any wise to do evil. For evil doers shall be cut off, but those that wait upon Yahweh, they shall inherit the earth. But the meek shall inherit the earth and shall delight themselves in the abundance of peace. Brethren and sisters, we pray that we more all might inherit in that glorious land, that we might inherit with Abraham and all of those that love the name of God, that God is called to be his people. Truly, as the Lord Jesus Christ said, he that overcometh shall inherit all things.